Welcome to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. Marketing is our passion, and as a chapter, we hope to inspire dialogue, fuel creativity, and create a community for marketers everywhere. Let the inspiration and dialogue begin. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe to our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Hello, we're your Marketers in Motion podcast hosts. I'm Josh Janowiak. Hey there, and I'm Megan Pear. Today's topic ends your addiction to storytelling, building brands through experience design. Agencies and marketers alike are addicted to storytelling. The advent of so-called content marketing has been the equivalent of a speedball coursing through the carving veins of marketers who think that every problem can be solved by telling a better story. Soon, they're going to miss a window of opportunity that will quickly end up in someone else's portfolio. If marketers and agencies don't come to terms in a hurry with the structural factors that have set the stage for experience-driven brand building, CEOs are going to tap other resources to do it instead. Experience design is the next frontier for brand building. You betcha, man. I am so excited for this one, Josh. You know my love for experience design, customer experience, anything like that. So I'm super excited to dive in with our guests today. But before we do, we want to thank our amazing sponsors who, of course, support our podcast and our entire AMA West Michigan season. So thank you to our podcast sponsor, River City Studios. Um, if you have not checked them out yet, rivercitystudios.com. They do uh, recording, mixing, mastering for podcasts, TV, film, radio, and musicians. And I have to say, I've been thoroughly enjoying all of their behind the scenes they've been posting on Instagram lately. So if you haven't checked them out on Instagram, make sure you do that as well. We also want to thank our annual sponsors. Uh, again, without them, none of what we do would be possible. So our gold sponsors, MIBiz and Vizcom Media, our silver sponsors, Pageworks, Bird and Bird Studio, and Red 66 Marketing. And of course, our bronze sponsors, OFA and Grand Valley State University Conference and Event Planning, which we will be back there next fall. So super oh, excited for that. So excited. So excited for that. Also, uh, shout out to Austin. He's our uh, our sound technician behind the screen here. Even though he's a, a separate room, he is wearing his mask. So being uh, very responsible, we appreciate that. So Russ officially is going to wrap up our 2020-2021 season. And we definitely want to thank all of our presenters, sponsors, members, and volunteers for another great, albeit challenging season. We're planning on returning to in-person events, as Megan just said, this fall at the uh, GVSU Seedman Center and cannot wait to sink our teeth into the tasty food that GVSU Conference and Event Planning's uh, team puts together for us. There's these cookie bars they make are just amazing. The Marketers in Motion podcast, of course, will continue through the summer months. If you have a topic that you'd love to hear us cover or ideas for great podcast guests, please send your suggestions to podcast at amawestmichigan.org. In future AMA members, log on to amawestmichigan.org to join our local West Michigan chapter and just make it official. If you're not in West Michigan, visit ama.org for AMA Nationals information and to find a chapter near you. Free training, certification tools, resources, discounts, academic journals, job boards, and networking opportunities are all available for only $150 a year or just 41 cents a day if I did my math right, Megan. I think you did there. So all good. 
And speaking of all things AMA, we are super excited. Joining us today is Russ Klein himself, the CEO of the American Marketing Association. And I just have to say, he has one of the most impressive bios. So I will tell you, we're going to post this online because I'm not going to go through the whole thing here live on air, but we will post it because I do think it is super impressive and definitely want to make sure you check that out in the show notes. But Couple highlights here. So Russ has uh, quarterback teams for many of the world's foremost brand names, uh, holding top marketing and advertising posts at Dr. Pepper, 7-Up Companies, Gatorade, 7-Eleven Corporation, Burger King Corporation, and Arby's Restaurant Group. He's held leadership positions with Leo Burnett, FCNB advertising agencies, and he currently serves on the board of Pop Sockets LLC. I love those things. I have one on my phone. Now he is the CEO for the American Marketing Association, and he is charged with the historic transformation of the AMA to become the essential community for marketers. So Russ, welcome so much to the Marketers in Motion podcast. Thank you for joining us. Megan, it's a privilege to be with you both. Thank you. Of course. Well, we thought we would start out before we jump into talking about experience design, which both Josh and I are very excited about. But we were also very hungry in reading your bio, and we want to hear a little bit more. Can you tell us about your time, just briefly, in the food and beverage industry? You've done some amazing things. Oh, well, thank you. I, I, uh, I have been uh, in and around the food and beverage industry for the the, the preponderance of my career. Uh, my career was in the ad agency uh, side, is where I began, and. Um, I was uh, fortunate enough to be hired away by one of my then clients, uh, uh, by the uh, then chairman of the board, John Albers, who was putting together Dr. Pepper and 7-Up in a LBO, uh, eventual IPO deal. And that really began my, my journey in earnest as a, a broad gauge marketer in, in that space. I'd been on cookies and crackers and other beverages and so forth on the agency side before that. But, you know, becoming a CMO is uh, obviously a, a different wingspan, you know, over a lot more responsibility. And, um, and that was the beginning of, of my, my entree there. We spent, uh, I uh, spent 18, eight years rather uh, with, with uh, some great teammates. Uh, and we uh, had a very successful uh, turnaround of the Dr. Pepper 7-Up brands during that period of time. And, um, and from there, um, I ended up uh, working on other brands like Gatorade when I decided to go back onto the agency side for a respite, if you will, away from industry. Uh, after our uh, IPO, I uh, uh, was in charge of worldwide advertising for Gatorade. And um, I worked actually for a little agency at the time, which was consumed by Footcone and Belding, where I then became the managing director, but that little agency was the agency that did Be Like Mike for uh, for Gatorade. So that kind of put us on the map, and uh, and um, and then from there uh, went to work on 7-Eleven as a CMO. Um, I could uh, talk about uh, how uh, uh, 7-Eleven, uh, great uh, company, um, but an interesting example on uh, maybe someone from the outside thinking it's a consumer-centric brand because it's such a famous trademark. But in fact, its culture is really not uh, a, con a consumer centricity. Uh, its culture is more around operations and merchandising. And so uh, I think it's an important watch out for uh, marketers who think that they're going to work with a, quote, famous brand, famous company. 
and finding out what the real culture is inside that maybe is driving the everyday activity and behavior there. Um, I have nothing negative to say about 7-Eleven to say that that was really instructive, you know, for me and something I try to coach, uh, you know, um, young marketers on when they're looking at, at job opportunities. Um, in there, again, I worked on a number of different restaurant uh, brands. Uh, uh, um, ultimately, I became the uh, CMO and then later president of Burger King. And uh, again, the teams there were incredible. Uh, we uh, we hired a little agency uh, that nobody had ever heard of uh, in Coconut Grove, uh, Florida, uh, called Crispin Porter Boguski, that would go on to become the most decorated agency of the 2000s. And, um, and so that was a, quite an adventure with Alex Boguski and, and the team there and, and my team at Burger King. And we, we really had the, the good fortune of pioneering a lot of, of uh of initiatives that uh, you know everyone else sort of just takes for granted these days, such as the advent of digital advertising um, and customer, you know, consumer-generated uh, content. Uh, and uh, uh, so we had a number of, I think, very creative um, and uh, highly recognized successes. Um, whether it would be cans, uh, uh, titanium lions, or whether it would be uh, you know, highly recalled advertising uh, as measured by Nielsen. Um, and so we really, you know, put Burger King on the map uh, in terms of its profile, but importantly, it was the most successful uh, six-year run that Burger King has ever had before or since. Um, and so uh, that was a wonderful experience. And then also uh, had the, the uh, good fortune of being involved in getting Arby's Restaurant Group turned around, uh, which has now since been consumed by Inspire Brands and is a holding company consisting of a number of different restaurant brands. But um, I've been involved in a lot of so-called turnarounds. In fact, I'm not sure that, that there is such a thing as a company that doesn't need to be turned around uh, or an organization. It seems like every organization, you know, that's looking for new leadership that they invoke the word you know, turnaround. Rarely do you hear someone say, everything is really going great here, but we want you to come and just inherit it and sort of go golfing, right? So right. Um, so um, I've been involved in a lot of change management um, and really thought I was a change management expert uh, until I get, got to the AMA. And my mandate at the American Marketing Association was transformation. Uh, and frankly, I was somewhat lazy in thinking that transformation and change management were the same thing, you know, intellectually lazy, I'll say. And I'm not sure, with all due respect to those who told me my mandate was transformation, knew any difference either. Um, and what I came to learn through some, you know, growing pains and what the team at the American Marketing Association has experienced with me is that um, change management is part of transformation, but transformation is something bigger. Um, and deeper and more inner um, and has to do with uh, your structural capabilities and your business model. Um, and it doesn't mean change management isn't important or you know, uh, an important skill set to have. But when you hear someone say transformation, you know, widen your eyes a little bit uh, and think differently ab about what they're really asking for. Well, Russ, that all sounds awesome and can't wait to dive into this topic with you. But I, I do want to know a little bit about what makes you tick on the personal side, because it sounds like you've worked really hard uh, over many years. But what does what does Russ do when he's he's not at work? 
Well, you know, in this Zoom world, uh, I think everyone experiences a, maybe a similar dynamic, which it's hard to, to actually turn off work. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, you know, I tell my board that I think my team at the AMA has worked harder and more, has been more prolific and more productive during this COVID lockdown than at any time before. And they were, they're hard workers, but I think, you know, it sometimes can be difficult to draw the line on your work space and your life space uh, in this current, you know, situation we're all in. So um, I have to say, Josh, I really work a lot, you know, and um, <laughs> I enjoy, I enjoy uh, working. I've really, it's been a thrill to be part of the AMA transformation, to see it working, seeing it come to life. Um, I do have side hustles. Um, I'm uh, an inventor. I've invented a mobile app uh, for live experiences. Um, I've invented a brand, uh, a social brand called Support Human. Um, and I've done some, you know, other things like that. I'm also engaged to be married. And, um, and I have, uh, um, I do have three grown children, uh, one of whom is a special needs young adult. So um, she um, uh, is a, a important part of, of my life and our lives and, you know, on a day in day out basis. Um, so I do a lot of different things. What I wish I was doing more of, but I'm not, is I wish I was out there jogging and running, which I used to be, you know, we use the term that uh, uh, people, marketers are addicted to storytelling. I used to be an addicted runner and I'm, I'm trying so hard to get addicted again uh, to it because uh, I really need it. But um and I enjoy reading, of course, I enjoy Netflix, and um, um, I really am a student of, of life as much as I enjoy teaching and coaching uh, my friends and my staff. Uh, I'm also a, a learner, you know, a lifelong learner, and so I, I soak up everything I can, you know, when it comes to that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, you'll have to get look into those uh, the the standing desks. They now come where you can have them on a treadmill, so you can walk. It might be a little hard to jog as you're working, but you know, next yeah. best thing. Yeah, I have no excuses. I have no <laughs> excuses. I have a fitness room uh, uh, right like 25 feet away from me. <laughs> so I and the door's shut, and uh, you know, I think I'm hanging dry drying towels on it or some of the equipment, but. Um, yeah, no, no excuse. That happens. That happens. Well, all right, let's, let's jump into this. Cause of course I was, I was a little shocked when I, when I read the, uh, the title of your presentation and your addiction to storytelling, building brands through experience design. I mean, it's a pretty shocking statement to many marketers who consider their primary role storytelling. So are you telling us that we have it all wrong? Well, you know, one of my, I think one of my trademarks in my career has been that uh, I've always said it's more important to be provocative than pleasant sometimes. So uh, I certainly went for the reaction. Uh, I want to jar people to think about uh, the role of storytelling. Uh, certainly most of my career successes have in one way or another involved uh, great storytelling. And so it's not that storytelling isn't important and isn't valuable, but I do think it needs to be looked at differently um, in a modern context. Uh, and that's really the case I make for experience design and uh, sort of the 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 what I call the four big markers that uh, have led me to evolve my thinking. Um, uh, the first one being the advent of e-commerce. Um, you know, 
Amazon, the Amazon effect, uh, that has certainly changed uh, the way customers think about uh, brands, products, and services. Uh, and they have really um, shattered category boundaries when it comes to customer satisfaction. It used to be that in a given category, you could look how your brand was doing vis-a-vis another brand in your category, and that was uh, a, a, you know, an important comparison. It doesn't matter anymore. Everybody compares an experience to the Amazon experience. They want everything to be friction-free, you know, uh, convenient, low cost, uh, and uh, that now transcends all categories of products and services. And so that was, a, I think, a game changer in terms of the, the expectations that are now in the marketplace. Um, the second uh, factor is the advent of social media, which, of course, is best uh, uh, symbolized by Facebook. Um, and we live in this network-based world now uh, where now storytelling has gone from the old one way out uh, to the customer to what is now an omnidirectional storytelling that goes on. It's ricocheting from all directions. It's coming back from the customer. It's coming from critics. It's coming from competitors. It's coming from employees. And everybody is out there uh, shaping the narrative for any given brand. And an understanding of that impact is also colored my my view then of how to uh, how to do your your best to influence or or get your story out there um, and in what you know in what context the um, the third marker a little more straightforward uh, it was 1993 when a Steve Jobs right hand design uh, person coined the term user experience or UX. Uh, up until that time, uh, it wasn't really language you heard. You know, it was much more about customer uh, centricity, maybe customer experience. Uh, but user experience brought a, a hypersensitivity to the user, usability, usefulness, uh, end user um, um, uh, focus and intensity, um, which is not always the customer, right? Not always the buyer. And and so it seems nuanced, but it, it, it is profoundly important because I think it is forever changed the way we think about the functionality, the reliability, the usability of products and services. And then uh, the fourth uh, marker is uh, over the course of my career, uh, when I was in the early, early part of it is, was when Starbucks started popping up on every corner. And as a person then in advertising, of course, I thought, wow, what a great brand. And why aren't they doing any advertising? And they really went their first 25 years uh, as a, as a, um, a non-advertiser. Um, they, they did, of course, in-store you know, uh, communication. Um, but there was essentially no ad budget for Starbucks in those days. Um, it was very, very small, if at all. Now, they do some advertising now, but they still are not what I would consider to be a heavy advertiser for a, a, a beverage and you know food brand that's as large as they are. All of that, to me, proved that you could build a brand on experience design alone. Because while there was storytelling, who was telling the story? Customers. Customers, mm-hmm. right? 
customers were. And, and that, again, just brought into stark relief that, that the best storytelling is the stories that get told by your customer, if you're lucky, you know, if you're doing your job, right? Um, and of course, because of these other factors now, the storytelling can't be guaranteed to be going your way, right? Um, and um, much like uh, I used to say in my advertising days, well, you know, if you say you're not going to advertise anymore, you're just saying you're you're withdrawing to have any influence on your advertising because other people are going to still talk about you, right? Well, I feel even more strongly about the statement that if you are not intentional about your experience design, that people are going to have an experience anyway. The question is, do you want to try to, to shape it? Do you want it to be uh, reliable, repeatable, um, uh, worth talking about? Do you want then the stories that emanate from that experience to be positive? And if you do, the root of your brand rests inside of the experience. Or said another way, the experience wraps around your value proposition. And, and so that's the case I, I make around the, the importance of, of experience design. And I try to help uh, marketers uh, think about you know, what that then means for the tools that they're familiar with, such as the four Ps and uh, how you, we might think about those differently. Um, and then um, I also do workshops on experience design uh, for um, uh, both companies uh, and uh, AMA chapters alike. Awesome. Well, yeah. And, and I know you mentioned too that it's becoming a critical skill for marketers, which I couldn't agree more. Um, but part of that is, you know, I love the word that you use because I think this speaks so much to experience design, the intentionality. And you had this slide when you spoke to us, and I just love this. It's another one of those shocker slides. Nobody wants your product. What do you mean by that? When when we look at you know brand managers, product managers, I mean that's what we're used to. What do you mean by that statement? Well, I, I'm glad it had the desired effect of uh, mm -hmm. again uh, trying to hit you between the eyes with um, a, a reality check. You know, uh, uh, when I consult with uh, uh, corporate clients. Uh, I, I tell them uh, early on in the conversation, privately, I, I don't do it to get into a fight, but I, I, I'll say to the CEO, nobody wants your product. Let's start there. And uh, it's easy, especially if you're on the client side, if you are a brand manager or a director or a, a, in the C-suite or a frontliner, you're proud of your, your hopefully you're proud of your, your company, proud of your brand, your, your service that you offer or the product that's being manufactured. And, and that kind of pride is good. Um, however, um, if it causes you to have blind spots over how well you're satisfying and how well you're delivering on the promise, um, then it becomes a, a hindrance. And so uh, the example I like to use is that if, if, um, if Henry Ford uh, cared, uh, uh, it had a product orientation, as opposed to a solution orientation, he would have become a breeder of faster horses. He just said, let's just try to find faster horses out there that can go from coast to coast. Um, but he did it. He was thinking about solutions. And when you say solutions instead of product, you open the aperture, uh, you, you, you make the palette wider and bigger to, to then innovate. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a performative language kind of thing where it's just, it's a, it seems nuanced or insignificant, but 
I coach uh, uh, companies to say, don't call your team product managers, call them solution managers. You know, d- uh, and, um, you know, don't call your, your product research department, our, you know, product research, call it solution research, because it simply sets the tone for um, a more expansive um, consideration set when it comes to innovation. And that, that's the reason I say that. And I think part of that, too, is you talk a lot about when you're designing products or even services, you talk a lot about functionality and usability. And you kind of gave this really great formula for things to look at with experience design, you know, talking about accessibility, um, you know, being learnable. Can you kind of walk us through what that formula looks like? Sure. Well, uh, there are uh, six uh, factors that I think... uh, uh, relate to usability for a product or a solution. And, uh, and it's a pyramid that I created. Um, I probably stole it, stole the, <laughs> the core uh, pyramid from someplace. But, you know, it starts with functionality, um, which is, does the thing work? Does it do what I, you know, uh, if you think about jobs to be done, which I, I love as a tool, um, is it doing what I hired it to do? Um, and is it doing it over and over and over again? So is it dependable? Those two um, uh, features to me represent usefulness. On top of usefulness, though, then comes usability. And I believe it's where a lot of, of, of product and service design people um, uh, fall down. Um, and the six uh, factors around usability, the first one is accessibility. Um, in that that could mean anything from um, um, if you have if your customer is blind um, and it doesn't have access to a Braille keyboard, um, or your customer is uh, handicapped in another way and you don't have wheelchair chair ramps, um, or it could be you know um, a more conceptual around uh, if you're in a rural area of the country and you don't have internet. Um, accessibility is such a foundational element because it literally, um, what it should be is it should be the same size as your addressable market. Your accessible market should be the same size as your addressable market. And if it's not, it's because you have failed to clear the way through all of the various, uh, you know, uh, ways I use, for instance, closed captioning and all of my PowerPoint presentations and webcasts and so forth. Um, I, I mean, I suppose other people would have it on their end to be able to do it, but I just do it intentionally and proactively. So accessibility, number one. Number two, number three, more straightforward, is, is it learnable? Is, is, is learning how to use your product or service, and then is, is it easy to remember how to use your product or service? And, and I, I say this because, you know, um, too often engineers and designers um, overestimate um, not the intelligence of their customer, but their customer's willingness to read instructions and their customer's, you know, sense of time that they have to read instructions and make sure they're doing everything properly. So, you know, learnability and, and is it memorable uh, are number two and number three. That leads to then number four, which is error tolerance. You know, is, is your product or, uh, or, or service solution error tolerant? Because of as I said, customers tend accidentally to misuse your product or service in it unwittingly, inadvertently um, uh, at the beginning. And so the question is, how easy is it after you've misused the solution 
to uh, get back on track so you can use it the right way. Uh, thinking of, I use TV remotes as an example. You know, if you press the wrong button on a TV remote, uh, there's a chance that you get caught in this sort of remote hell that you can't get back out of. And, uh, you know, I, I joke, but I tell the truth when I say I've waited like a week for my son to come over who could get me out of the mode because I pressed the wrong button and couldn't get back out of it for my, my TV. Um, so error tolerance is, is really uh, an important aspect uh, that should be part of the proving ground of uh, usability of solutions. Um, number five is affirmational. Uh, this one also sometimes gets overlooked. Uh, affirmation could be as simple as when you're downloading something and uh, you, uh, you, you download it, but you don't get a little um, a pop-up that says you successfully downloaded it. And when you don't get it, you're kind of like, did I get it? And I have um, many times gone up to my download box at the end of a day and found out that, um, that I've uh, downloaded the same file six times because I didn't get affirmation that I did it right the first time. Um, I also use shampoo as an example. Shampoo doesn't need to have bubbles and suds, but it does because it's there to affirm to somebody that it's working, right? Um, Listerine tastes bad, doesn't have to taste bad. It's affirmational. This stuff has to be killing germs because it's killing me right now. So, you know, that kind of, 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 of thinking. Um, and then the last uh, uh, feature, uh, particularly in today's economy, um, is it easy to repair, easy to update, easy to renew, to recycle, to reuse, to resell? These are all important um, um, dimensions of usability. Uh, you know, I saw, a, saw an article the other day where someone who owns an old GE refrigerator could actually uh, now um, download something that like brings their refrigerator's capabilities up um, by a simple download, even for like a refrigerator that's many years old. That's usability. You know, um, this whole world of the, the old school of planned obsolescence is really not cool anymore for, for customers. Nobody really wants to, that kind of, um, you know, uh, design behind their solution. They wanna know that this could be a lifelong solution and if they're not gonna keep it for life, they can resell it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Russ, another one of the statements that you had mentioned a couple of times that really sunk in, world-class experience design is a world in which everything is bought and nothing is sold. Let's talk a little bit more about what exactly that means. And also, I found it very fascinating when you talked about the originator of experience design. Because, of course, my mind went back to brands, Starbucks, Apple, stuff we had already mentioned. So talk about that. And also, um, again, today, some of the, the organizations that are doing experience design really well in some of those examples. Sure. Thank you, Josh. Uh, well, I think... Um... Uh, my 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 mantra, uh, and actually, and not not that I was on a pilgrimage, but I I, I thought of this idea um, after spending a number of meetings with Bill Kotler, uh, the father of modern marketing, who I've had the privilege to get to know, um, and I also traveled to India uh, with another academic, um, and and uh, I was actually um, working with a local business person in India. Uh, who said to me, 
about everything that was in the store. He said, you know, we don't put pressure on people. Everything here is bought and nothing is sold. And I thought for a moment, I love that. And, and I thought to myself, that is really what responsible marketing is, is all about. It doesn't mean there's no marketing. It just means that marketing uh, in a world where everything is bought and nothing is sold is about getting the right solutions to the customer so that they are, um, you're giving your customer a chance to adopt uh, your solution rather than having it jammed on them. And, and that doesn't even mean that things like, you know, ice cream, which are impulse, you know, pleasure seeking solutions, even that to me, that can be a solution that is bought and not sold. And, and so it's really a, an ethos. It's a mindset that I think would, um, would be a, a, a worthwhile one for the industry to adopt. We all know marketing has got a bad name in some corners of the world because of those who are, are reckless about how they practice it. And uh, yeah, what I say to, you know, especially the young people that I talk to that, you know, you, you're growing up in a world of marketing now where you've got all these superpowers. You know, you've got artificial intelligence and, and augmented reality and virtual reality and predictive analytics and contextual understanding and neuroscience to know how people respond to messages. You you know, you have a lot of power. And so I really say to, to um, I, I challenge the group to say is, you know, how are you going to use that power? Um, are you going to use it in a, in a way where you're going to be just uh, finding more ways to have come-ons and pop-ups and uh, invasions of privacy? Or are you going to find a way to uh, be in harmony with your customer's journey and get solutions to them that are both either needed or desired in a way where the experience is one that leaves both parties feeling really great about it? And so that to me is, is what that's all about. I love that you just mentioned that too, because this is a big thing for me. And you also explained this in your presentation that marketers, especially with experience design, really need to be the voice and advocate for the customer. And I think you just beautifully sum that up of that is how you do marketing is keeping them in the forefront and designing these experiences that are going to be useful and helpful for them. Yes. So your question, Josh, about the origin of experience design or intentional experience design, it's a little bit of a head fake question because it does send, uh, you know, uh, your listeners to say, well, it's got to be Apple or it's got to be Disney or it's got to be Starbucks. And of course, all of those are great world uh, class design uh, companies. Uh, but but uh, actually, intentional experience design began 27,000 years ago in prehistoric religion. Um, and you know, again, not 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 making a case for or against uh, you know God, religion, denominations, whatever your source of spiritual renewal is, um, is your business. Uh, but it is a in an academic sense, uh, it's a fascinating display of intentional experience design. When you think about a church, uh, you think about the use of light and color and aroma and sound and the. Uh, the, even like the subordination of kneeling at the pew uh, to your God or um, getting into a confessional where it's somewhat claustrophobic and you're in a dark spot, feeling down perhaps, and you're looking through the light 
where your absolution and relief can come. And all of that is a, you know, intentional um, subordination, um, you know, to a, to a higher uh, power. And, uh, and um, of course, it's been around, it's been time tested. It's been a very durable, you know, a set of, of experienced designs out there that have lasted eons, right? And so I think that uh, it's a, uh, a as, an, as someone who's also got kind of a, you know, a, a thing for anthropology and social anthropology, you know, I think it's a fascinating example to learn from in terms of intentional experience design, knowing that, um, that in, in, from the point of view of a given religion, um, their goal, of course, is to have someone be fully uh, bought in and, and, um, uh, and to the extent that they are a ritual. You, you are a rich, you know, it is a ritual in your life. Um, and, you know, we use the word ritual kind of loosely uh, now, you know, in pop culture, you know, oh, my Starbucks every morning is a ritual. And it is actually, uh, it's what I call a small R ritual. Um, and then, of course, there can be, you know, big R rituals. And um, I should be attributing uh, some of this thinking to some social scientists, but I can't remember their names now. But, um, you know, my what I've done is transpose that, uh, that, that thinking on marketing, because I think that um, uh, there are brands that have become rituals, and those are generally very profitable brands, um, very successful, enduring, profitable brands. But understanding rituals um, further can help you, even if you can't become a ritual, you can become integrated into another thing that is a ritual, or you can position yourself adjacent to a ritual. Uh, and so, you know, one of the examples I use is that, uh, you know, uh, coffee uh, every morning is a small R ritual for, for someone. Um, and if you're an appliance manufacturer and you're trying to figure out, gee, what kind of new appliances can I make? Um, one idea could be to invent a clock radio that is also a coffee maker, right? And so now you've got an appliance and it's making coffee and you have basically stepped into and integrated a product into what you know is a ritual for someone. Um, you know, Coca-Cola has just introduced a, a new product called, I think it's called Coffee and Coke, which again is trying to get at the same ritual it's been observing for decades, soft drink companies for decades have been trying to position uh, new beverages, observing how many people drink cold diet Coke in the morning instead of coffee. And many have tried, many have failed. You know, my answer has always been, well, what's wrong with just continuing to drink diet Coke in the morning, which is what I do. But Coca-Cola hasn't given up uh, on it. And they've now introduced a product that is literally, I believe, their formula for Coke and coffee in, in, a, in a cold beverage drink. And it's pretty new, so I don't know if it's successful or not, but it's a great case study in tapping into something you know is a ritual uh, with your brand, with innovation, right? And um, so, you know, basically the construct is there are small R rituals, tend to be more uh, personal, more um, in, informal, um, the, the storytelling that, that emanates from small R rituals tends to be shorter. I mean, we tend to not regale about our coffee yesterday morning with other people, right? Um, but then there are big R rituals, things like, uh, you know, annual rivalry football games or music festivals or food and wine festivals. And those are much grander in, 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 uh, in design 
They are, uh, they are, there's a sense of spirituality and connectedness. Uh, you know something's happening when you're at a, a big R ritual. You know, everybody is just jazz, right? And, and that big R ritual um, is, uh, is something that if you're really, really fortunate, you can find a way again. How do you integrate your product or position your product next to those big R rituals? And again, a, a kind of a lazy example would be food and beverage that's available at a football game, right? Um, uh, because there's a big thing going on there. You know there's going to be people there. They're going to be there reliably. So how do we get our products in and around those rituals that are taking place? And I think every brand, every service, every product out there can develop solutions that can take advantage of ritualistic behavior uh, going on in the market. And, and when I say take advantage, I don't even like using those words, uh, but I think, you know, um, uh, take opportunity with those um, because I, I, you know, I don't mean it in the form of exploiting it. You know, a clock radio uh, that makes coffee does something that's really good. It's not really, you know, it's not exploitative. But, um, and so, you know, I would always say, you know, go back to see number one when it comes to a world in which everything is bought and nothing is sold if you're looking for your moral compass on, on things. Uh, but um, that's how I that's how I really see ritual uh, ritualistic behavior being uh, really a friend to uh, brands out there if you think about it the right way. So you're a Diet Coke ritual. You said Diet Coke, right? That's yours. Yes. I am, I yes. am a coffee and smoothie ritual morning. Josh, what are you? I, I'm I'm definitely coffee, and I'm thinking I don't know. It, there, there could be an argument that that might be a big R for me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's just it's associating exactly right. that that smell, that taste. That's the it starts the day. I mean, that sets the pace for the rest of the day. That's that's big deal. That's a good point. That's a Josh, good point. you're exactly right. It's you're exactly right, Josh. It is you know, and and uh, and and that's the kind of abstracting that that a good smart marketer would do. They would say, "Is this a? Are we sure this is a small R ritual to our customer or our design target?" Maybe it is. Maybe it does figure more importantly into their life like it does for Josh. So um, that's a great point. Now, Russ, you also mentioned uh, there was a golden rule, remove friction first, boost positive opportunities later. And then if I have it right, you also said uh, you mentioned that fewer than two in 10 people begin solving problems by subtraction versus addition. So how can we get into the mindset of subtractive versus additive solutions? Right. Yes. Well, you know, it's why um, uh, it's why that uh, uh, painkillers are easier to sell than vitamins. Right. Uh, people will pay more and they'll move faster to get their hands on a painkiller if they're in pain. Right. Um, and um, uh, it doesn't mean vitamins aren't good and important, but uh, that is a good golden rule for experience design. And, you know, the insight around how few people actually begin solving a problem through subtraction. Uh, I, I think is fascinating. Uh, it, what it really, you know, what it, what it really takes for me, it's it's a little bit like um, uh, unconscious bias. You know, the 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 best way to um, fight unconscious bias is mindfulness, right? And mindfulness is the same thing that you use to fight, um, you know, trying to maybe you know gild the lily, as they say, or add things into the mix to make them more complicated or more fussy. Um, you know, you see uh, apps like Virgin Atlantic's uh, booking, flight booking app. It uses three features. 
you know, it could have used a hundred features, but basically, you know, you, you're, it's your, it's your boarding pass, it's your flight alerts and your check-in, that's it. Um, and, you, you know, it doesn't, doesn't give you a bunch of bells and whistles. And, and so when you go into a brainstorming session, right, what is the bias right away? You better come up with something. Don't come to this meeting if you're not going to come up with something, right? So what do we begin doing before we've even stepped in the room? We're adding things, right? So next time, try to have a brain subtraction meeting and say, we're going to go into this meeting and we're going to look at our solutions that we offer our customers and our value proposition and see what could be better if we remove something. And again, it's just a, it's a mindfulness, I believe, that will put you immediately in position to uh, come up with some fresh ideas and some uh, ways to remove friction um, and, uh, um, you know, uh, create a clearer value proposition. I think the, the person, and you mentioned Disney in your presentation, but they do that so well. And I, I've personally attended one of their experience design courses and, just the, again, the intentionality, the just looking at every single detail to make sure that it meets their brand promise, which is, you know, creating magic. How do marketers even get to that point? How do we start to think around, you know, over managing, being intentional and looking at all these aspects in design, if this isn't something we're used to? Right. Well, I think, you know, uh, it, it is a, you know, it's, uh, it, 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 I guess the first point that makes this whole case is that it takes the intentionality, right? It takes, uh, it takes that first step to say, we're going to be intentional about our experience design. It has to start at the CEO's office or at least get CEO buy-in. And it has to get cross-functional buy-in across the C-suite. You know, experience design is a team sport. And it cannot be delivered uh, by one function in a company. Uh, no matter how great a marketing department is, it can't be delivered without the help of everybody in that organization from the CEO to the front line. And in fact, you know, my old rule in the restaurant industry was that the store manager trumps the brand manager every time. Uh, because if you don't, you know, you may have your great plans up at headquarters, but if you have not communicated, aligned, inspired your front line, they will make a great idea fail. Mm -hmm. And conversely, if you have communicated, aligned, and inspired, they will take a mediocre idea and make it magic, right? So it is, it is, it is so critical to build uh, an, a co-creative you know, uh, design, an experience design, number one, with intentionality, um, understanding all the, the stakeholders involved needed for it to work. And then, you know, from an actual process standpoint, I like to point people to uh, a picture of a dirt path. And uh, some of your listeners may or may not have heard of the Oregon experiment back in the 60s when University of Oregon built a new campus, a big part of their campus, and uh, very insightfully did not put sidewalks in for a year. They waited for a year until there were dirt paths that were formed and then they paved them. Smart. That is the essence of experience design right there. That is what we would call designing for experience, not designing experiences. 
the sidewalk that runs along dirt paths is what happens when someone designs experiences. That's what you get. And if you're really great, your sidewalk will be the right place where people want to walk. But if you ever see a dirt path anywhere, you can just immediately say, well, whoever designed the sidewalk failed. They failed to find the, the, the path of least resistance. And so the customer went and found it for themselves, right? And so there is the equivalent of a dirt path in every customer journey for every product and service imaginable. And so your job as a marketer and as an experienced designer is to find that dirt path and design for it, which means pave it, plant flowers next to it, um, but, but work with it, don't fight it. And that's really the key. Well, speaking of dirt paths, uh, before we wrap up things, I thought this was a really interesting aspect of your presentation. What does experience design look like in a post-COVID world? Where are we going next? Uh, well, I, based on what I can see, and I'm, again, a, a student of these things, just like you you and Josh are, I, I, I uh, uh, follow um, a lot of different thought leaders. Uh, one is uh, Jay Walker Smith who is uh, this year's Parlin Award winner, which is the most esteemed award uh, an academic uh, can receive for their impact on industry. And uh, uh, Walker is the chief knowledge officer at Kantar. Uh, mm -hmm. And he does a great presentation you can find on AMA.org around um, you know, what will and won't change in a, in a post-COVID world. And he talks about three big forces. One, the force of human scale, uh, the second one uh, being risk aversion, uh, and the third being hygiene. And, and really, the, uh, the third, hygiene, is going to be the, the, the dominant theme. And, and, uh, and hygiene in the sense that it is not just about like the obvious suspects, like, oh, your restaurant better be clean. It's about everything. It's about something that comes to you in a package, comes to you at a shelf comes to you as a service with interacting with other people, the importance of reassuring hygiene, safety, cleanliness uh, to the customer is vital. And it will be vital because this generation, and, and I don't even say it as an age, I say it as a, all people who lived during mm -hmm. this, whether you're old or young, have been scarred. And they have been permanently scarred it has been etched into their psyche that, you know, uh, how close to death something you can't see, something that you might breathe in, um, can kill you, right? And so um, this has really, uh, in some ways, introduced an irrationality, uh, which is what fear is. I mean, fear is good for us up to a point. It's, with, it's a natural gift that we're given uh, to, you know, to react to danger. But I think what's happened now is that the fear um, is going to have a long tail. Long after the science says it's okay to take off your mask, it's okay to kind of resume. Um, and, and I don't say that in a critical way. That's mm -hmm. how people feel. And that's how we as marketers need to be uh, sensitive to it. Um, and I think in Walker's presentation, he showed that four out of five people believe that another pandemic is likely in the next five years. Now, any reputable scientist, I think, would say, no, that's really not likely at all. However, people believe it is, and so that's real. 
that fear is real. And, and so hygiene uh, needs to be addressed in both a real sense. In other words, if you're a restaurant example, it needs to be uh, sanitized and clean and your servers need to be sanitized and clean and your food, your supply chain, all of that stuff. And the appearance of hygiene needs to be demonstrated. There has to be a perception, not just a reality of hygiene. And that might come in the form of what you would consider to be theatrical elements, like the smell of bleach, um, the, um, um, the presence of seeing a mask on a server, even though long after they're not necessary. It might be assuring to a customer to see that their server's wearing a mask. Now, I don't know, maybe not. Uh, maybe that will fall by the wayside, but it would be an example of, of, of a restaurant saying, I wanna make sure you know that we're going you know, to the extra lengths, right? Um, it might be um, uh, a sign on the tabletop that says this table was uh, with a little uh, whiteboard on it. It says this table was last sanitized at you know, 12.05 PM and it's 12.08 you know, and so you know it's clean. You know, that sort of thing. So, the, so being both real, managing reality and perception of hygiene uh, safety is going to be critical because people are very, very risk averse, and it's going to take a long, long time to, uh, uh, if ever, to you know, to find that old level of threat in their in their head. Yeah, and that goes back to your your affirmations of smelling the bleach. I mean, knowing that that's clean, knowing that 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 you know that that effort's been made. And I like that you also mentioned too the perception being the reality. Because when you work on experience design and, and a lot of organizations as well, what they think, what they think their image and their brand is can be perceived as something totally different on the other side. So I think there's that that disconnect that can happen and and making sure that you are aware that you're listening to your customers and that you you know how you're being perceived. Because whether you think you're portraying that way or not, uh, people can be seeing it totally differently. So Awesome. Well, thanks, Russ. Did, is there anything that major topics that we missed out before we we end up with our last couple of questions for you? Uh, not really, uh, Josh. I'm here for you. So fire away, and I uh, hope it's helpful. All right. Well, yeah. Our just our ending with why questions, and I, I think we we got a good uh, answer from you and and good indication of what you're going to say on what is your why. Uh, when you started out and just talking about what you do in your spare time and how much spare time you don't have because you love your work. So off of Simon Sinek's uh, TED Talk, what is your why? What makes you tick and what makes you who you are? You know, I haven't been asked a personal why. And uh, that's interesting. You'd think I would have thought about that as much as I uh, self-reflect and self-examine. The what I think my why is is to understand and to be understood. You know, I, I, I do tell my team all the time that next to being in love, there's no more satisfying feeling than to be understood. Mm -hmm. And so when you can really make the time to understand someone else, you're really giving them a gift, uh, um, a profound gift. So that's my why. Love it. Yeah. Well, here's, here's the second question for you. Who or what inspires you? Uh, well, I mentioned Phil Kotler earlier um, as someone who I um, just adore. He just celebrated his 90th birthday. Uh, wow. The man, he's the father of modern marketing. Uh, for those of us in the, in the field, 
who know that. And he, uh, uh, at the age of 90, he's written more books after the age of 50 than he did before. Uh, he uh, uh, has really been a trailblazer in terms of um, this, the, the vision that I share around a world in which everything is bought and nothing is sold in terms of uh, impact on a better world. Um, that, you know, that marketing doesn't need to go away for a better world. It just needs to reform and, and evolve. Uh, and um, so Phil is, uh, and then Phil uh, publicly said that I was his mentor for experience design. And when he said that, I felt like I'd been knighted. And oh, uh, nice. so, you know, yeah, so that's, that's, that's a, that was a very special exchange. Um, but I, you know, I would say uh, when I think about what it really gets me going is the is the right is when someone just finds the right words. I think I'm a you know I'm a junkie for frameworks and organizing principles. And you know, Bill, you know, had that ability has that ability to levitate above the situation and see all the dots, you know, and find the opportunity between the dots, you know, and that's that ability. Um, and then, and then to express it, you know, finding the right word. There's a French term, uh, mot juste, which means the right word. And so I, I try as mightily as I can to find the right words when I write, when I speak. Uh, probably didn't do a great job acquitting myself of that today here, but I do love trying to find the right words, you know, to get an idea across. Well, you definitely found them today. I. I... We thoroughly enjoyed your chat. And I love Phil's books, by the way. So I totally agree with you. He's written some really powerful marketing books. So to our listeners, if you haven't checked him out yet, definitely do that. Well, and, and we'll definitely note that in the uh, show notes of the uh, podcast on our website. And that will lead into the next question. And since you are a reader, you don't have to limit it to just one. But we typically ask, what's your favorite book and or podcast if you like to consume audio uh, versions of the things that you would also read. So again, feel free to, to give us a few, give mm -hmm. us your top five. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, it's a, that could be a sensitive territory because I read from one end of the spectrum to the other on politics and listen. And so I don't even want to venture into naming one or two or three or four for fear that I'll omit one, uh, you know, in, uh, because I, I look for balance, you know, and I look for a com um, I look for complete perspective on things, and uh, um, uh, and that's important to me. So uh, uh, my favorite book of all time is Count of Monte Cristo, uh, oh. and you know there are some people who think it's a story about uh, vengeance. I think it's a story about justice, and. Um, so, but you know, I just loved that book. It changed me, kind of. It it sort of elevated me um, uh, after I read it. And um, um, I'm not, you know, it's it's probably there's a psychoanalytical project there. But um, you know, I I uh, I'm a big consumer of daily bites of stuff. So you know, I read the the daily AMA, my AMA daily, which is uh, you know a daily newsletter that's. Uh, artificial intelligence and personalized and it's free. And, uh, and so I, I love reading that and I love, you know, scanning all of my different news feeds. And um, I tend to, like I say, I tend to consume a lot of, of uh, policy and political stuff, like I say, across the board. 
Well, and I will say, Russ, I found something which I, I, I also on the politics side, for some reason, am fascinated by it and will read and listen to a lot of podcasts on it. Um, the website called allsides.com, which actually ranks all of the different news outlets by their biases. And of course, there's nobody that's really, truly unbiased. Everybody has biases. Right. But it will, you know, you'll hear a story and then it will show you how all of the different news outlets and how they are pitching the story and are headlining the story. Yes. It's very fascinating. Yes. And in my, in my opinion, uh, the existence of that is what uh, proves the point about uh, addiction to storytelling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if there was more time spent on experience design <laughs> in, in politics uh, and less on the storytelling, uh, we might get a better, you know, society. Well, I you have, like that could be a whole nother podcast. Yeah. And yeah. I think you've got your next niche. Yeah, exactly. We'll have you back on to, to, to chat about that. <laughs> um, yeah. I do want to just quick note and do a, a shout out to the, the My AMA uh, newsletter. I, I am really anal about my newsletters. There's only three that I open religiously every day. And that is one of them. Um, you guys have done a phenomenal job at National really using artificial intelligence to design a true personalized, I mean, this comes up with like, I, you know, hit different articles and it it learns my likes, what I'm interested in. So the content is truly, truly personalized. So to our listeners out there, we'll link that in the show notes as well, but definitely sign up for that, that newsletter. Um, Last question, based on what you've learned throughout your career, what is the one piece of advice that you would offer to others? Okay, so this is just a trap question, uh, you know, because, and, but I, you know, I have been asked it many, many times, and I finally, I think it came into focus for me um, that I think the best piece of advice I could give a young person or any person for that matter um, is um, if, if you may not have seen the movie called Sliding Doors, which was uh, one of the first movies that Quint- Gwyneth Paltrow uh, acted in and starred in. And she is an advertising executive, I think in New York City, and she gets fired. Uh, and so she goes home early that day and she's running for the subway and she runs to the doors as they are sliding shut and they slide shut and she doesn't get in. And then through the magic of film, they rewind it. She runs back down the stairs, runs to the train, and this time she does get in. And the rest of the movie shows you how different her life was based on that single event of either getting into the train at that moment or not getting into the train. In the one where she gets into the train, she goes home and catches her fiance in bed with another woman. And the one where she doesn't get in the train, she ends up marrying the guy. So right off the bat, you can see the vectors, how the vectors change based on a single event. And I think there's been a number of different, you know, concepts that have tried to speak to um, this. Uh, the book, Never Never Eat Lunch Alone, um, mm-hmm. same kind of idea, which is put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that you may not be able to control the outcomes, but you can control your at-bats, Right. Uh, or in baseball, right? You can't control how many hits you're going to get, but if you make the team, at least you're going to get up to bat, take your at-bats, and everybody's going to have a different batting average. But the fact is you will get your hits. And the 
and so the more you put yourself out there, the more hits you're going to get. And then you can, you know, navigate those hits as you like. But the but but to understand how profoundly different your life is based on whether you get into a train at a single moment should make you mindful of how epic every decision you make is. And so I my advice is, you know, for people who are kind of sitting on the sideline, if you're down or depressed, which I have been in my life, um, and you're, you know, it's like, oh, I don't know what's gonna happen, what I'm gonna do, or get out there. Go get on the go get on the train, right? Um, and um uh and just don't undervalue every every move you make because it could be the move. It could be the move that changes everything. What a great way to wrap up. Man, yeah, get out perfect. there, get on the train. I absolutely love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Russ. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's always great to hear, hear your insights. I love when you speak at the AMA conferences and share your insights with everybody. Um, we always ask this, though, if our listeners have questions, want to get a, get in touch with you, where can they reach out? Well, my personal email is rkline at ama.org. I'm happy to hear from anyone. Um, you can reach my assistant, Callie Olowinski at K. O-L-E-W-I-N-S-K-I uh, at AMA.org. And, um, you know, want to schedule a call or something. And if there's someone I can be helpful to uh, folks out there, especially if you are an AMA member, um, it would be my pleasure. Wonderful. Anything new and exciting, by the way, with AMA coming up that you can, anything you want to share with us? Tease us, well, tantalize us. <laughs> Oh my! Well, you know we're going through, as you as you know, Megan, we're going through a a transformation, and you know transformations are um, much deeper, as I said at the outset, than simple change management. And some tra some transformations. There was an article in Harvard Business Review recently that said transformations can take up to ten years, and we I think of what, we're in about year five of our transformation, and we're really starting to see the green tips now of 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 what has been a structural shift in the AMA model. And, and so the best days are ahead. Uh, in the meantime, you know, our membership is growing. Our retention rates are growing. Our financial health is growing. Our AMA journals are growing in impact and reach. Um, so um, there's a lot of good uh, uh, momentum going on at the American Marketing Association. And I, I think especially as we get back into a uh, a, a somewhat more normal cadence that the AMA is looking forward to, you know, um, kind of exhaling and spreading our wings with our, our communities again. Yeah. Well, that's so great to hear. Lots of exciting things have happened that you're right in the past five years. It's great to see all that has come on the horizon. And one day we will join you back in Chicago for the, the big leadership conference, which is always fun. It's our favorite event. Yeah, you're always welcome. Yeah, come see us at the Prudential Plaza. Uh, yeah. The, the AMA Support Center is there. It's built for our guests, for our customers, our members to come by, have a cup of coffee, power up at a workstation. We'll get you a conference room. Uh, love to say hello. Well, and that and that said, Russ, I must I must commend you, AMA National, all of the AMA chapters for another awesome uh, leadership summit. Even though it was uh, virtual this year, you guys did a great job with the online platform you had, um, the utilization of your your cool little app where we could uh, have applause and laugh um, during some of the 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 speak the speakers. And uh, 
I'm just, I'm always inspired when I walk away from that just by, you know, so talking with so many like-minded individuals and I really get a lot out of, especially those breakout chats where you can just talk to other members about what, what are we facing and, you know, going back now into uh, programming virtual and hybrids and how do we do this and, and just being able to talk to people about that. So once again, um, another, another great summit we flexed. We had a great time, and hopefully next year we'll we'll be back in person. Well, thank you for your your kind words, Josh. And uh, the the summit is uh, only successful when uh, when people like you come and connect and you know engage. And uh, I was very pleased to see see the energy there. So thank you. Yeah, awesome. And when things get open up a little bit, Josh and I will take you up on that. Maybe we'll come to a remote podcast in headquarters. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely. God, we'd love to have you. Absolutely. Oh, okay. You can come say, hopefully say hello to Nacho. Uh, yes. And uh, yep. Little Nacho. I think Little I got Nacho. a, I got a call from, uh, got a call from the hospital while we were talking. So hopefully he's uh, out of his anesthesia and all that. Oh, go, go pick him up. Well, all right. We we're... Will let you go so you can go see if Nacho's good. We hope so. Sending best wishes to Nacho. But again, thank you so much for us. We really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. And of course, we got to say thanks again to all our 2020, 2021 presenters, sponsors, members, and volunteers for another great season. We are planning on returning to in-person events this fall at the GDSU Seedman Center. Stay tuned for updates on the 2021-2022 lineup of speakers and topics. Log in to amawestmichigan.org to join our local West Michigan chapter. Visit ama.org for AMA national information and to find a chapter near you if you're not in West Michigan. For free training, certifications, tools, resources, discounts, academic journals, job boards, and networking opportunities. They're all available for only $150 a year or again, just 41 cents per day with your membership. Lastly, we want to hear from you. What content are you loving? What do you want to hear more about? Let us know with a quick email to podcast at amawestmichigan.org. We also encourage you to subscribe, review, and engage with us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and a bunch of them that we can't even remember. Wherever you find great podcasts, you'll find Marketers in Motion. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is AMA.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe and share our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Don't forget important links, content, and resources will be included in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. What will you do with the information you learned today? Be inspired. Be creative. Be bold. Set your marketing in motion.